should be no surprise that I'm going to begin today with a question. Even before we go to the Lord together in prayer, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then that king speaks. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Yet how happy are all who take refuge in him. The Psalter begins with the wisdom of two ways in Psalm one and then the two ways in the nations at the end in the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm two. And that is our only hope. It always has been. And see, I told you so today. It still is our only hope in the future of righteous governance is the Lord Jesus to show us how it's done. And that's what's going to happen. Whoa, you're behind me. I've never had someone behind me before. I'm going to preach to that group up there. We need to put a block right there. I can't be behind it. It's always been the same answer. We're not there yet. That's the answer. We're not there yet. There's no election that's going to get us there. We're going to keep messing it up. We're going to keep failing and God's not going to fail, but he's going to let us see our own failure. And that's what you're seeing in the culture and the time in which you live. It's good news that the Bible predicts it, proclaims it, suggests it. The history of mankind is a history of failure on man's part and salvation on God's part. And we take refuge in that. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship with God and I'll open us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that your son has led captivity captive. We thank you that we are given gifts, that we are useful to you and the purpose that you have for us. And we thank you that despite the fact that my people are led captive for their lack of knowledge, despite the fact that we have as a culture rebelled against you and rejected you, despite like Habakkuk, we can say, I look around and see violence. Yet we can turn to you and say in wrath, remember mercy. Father, our trust, our hope, our expectation is in you to do what you said, and it's our only hope. This morning, Father, we ask that you'd strengthen us in your word as we think your thoughts after you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 2020, the year the music died. 
This is my biggest complaint about the last year was that we stopped singing together. Really is my biggest complaint about the whole thing. You could say, wait, 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 a lot of people died. A lot of people always die and that's awful and it's horrible. And Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead to save us from that horrible thing that we're all facing, which is death. But I'm talking about singing. I mean, we haven't gotten to sing uh, together except for just a couple of times we did some outside things. Uh, on the outset, I'm going to distract you from what we'll talk about in First Timothy today, First Timothy chapter 1. I want to distract you a little bit by saying I'm going to share with you um, a review of what we talked about over the year. And I'm also going to ask you to consider joining me for song next Sunday after the service, at the end of the service. Those that are concerned about spread of virus and contamination, feel free. That's, that's your time to exit. It's fine. Uh, but those that want to sing together, I'm going to ask you to put on the cone of submission, wear a mask to prevent the um, projection of the particles that we are in inevitably going to emit when we raise our voices in song. I'm going to ask you to do something else. Next Sunday at the end of the service, if you will join me in singing God's praises, I want you to fill the room with sound. Because it's a room designed for that purpose. And this small little gathering of the choir here today could really sh rattle this roof. And so please, uh, let's, let's sing a mighty fortress next time. And uh, let's do it uh, with, with a mask and let's sing th through the mask. So uh, that's my plan. And um, I ask you to join me in that. And if you're concerned, if, that's a, if, that, if that bothers your conscience at all, believe me, I'm not trying to step on your conscience it bothers my conscience that we're not singing. It really does. It really bothers me because that's one key way that we're called by God to worship him. And it's really missing. When I go down to other places, I find churches filled with no masks and singing all the time, all the time, no mask. People are free to wear a mask if they want. They don't have to, but they're singing as the focus of their service, which I don't agree with that, but, um, they're not dying from it. We're not going to die either because we're going to be wise about it. We're going to sing and then we're going to walk out and not breathe each other's breath. So hopefully you can, uh, if you're excited, you're like, yeah, we can sing. You're probably mad now that I said we're going to sing with a mask on. And if you're angry that I said we're going to sing because that's going to endanger people, then you're, um, you're certainly going to need to pray for me. But either way, I hope you know that I'm saying what I say because I love you and I'm seeking God's very highest and best for you. Speaking of God's highest and best, as we begin this new year, I want to remind you the only way we make it through life is not a year at a time, it's a day at a time. If you did it right in 2020, regardless of the fact that poor Dave couldn't sing or whatever else happened, you had a great year because you'd lived it a day at a time to serve God with the time he gave you. This last year was a gift because it was filled with days, not days for us to disregard and pass away in dissipation, but days to be filled with God's work, with God's word, with the joy of our so great salvation. The Lord Jesus teaches us one day at a time in Matthew chapter six. And he says that every day has enough trouble for its own, that you need to just handle what God has given you today, because here's how it works. All you have is the present. It's always true. It's universally constantly true. You cannot get hold of tomorrow. 
You can't do anything about yesterday. I mean, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it except choices that you make now based on yesterday, but you can't fix yesterday. It's settled. It's done. It's in the dustbin of history. All you can do about yesterday is learn from it and do your duty today and thereby set yourself up for a good tomorrow. That's the way we get through this life. And I believe that every day of your life is a jewel in the treasure chest of God's grace to you. And you should enjoy it that way. You should think of it that way. And my optimism does not spring from my hope in the usefulness or wisdom of man. I've read the Bible some. I've read it with you some. I think we've all concluded the problem is man. And I don't mean men as opposed to women. I mean, all of us, we are the problem because we all think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And we all are in desperate need of a savior. And we are all in a constant state of coming to ourselves and saying, it's not about me. It's about God and him having his way, which then gives us our eternal significance. We're the problem. And when we get together to solve the problem, we make a bigger problem. <laughs> That's the story of Genesis chapter 11. For the entirety of the year 2020, as well as the year 2021, we were on notice from God that time is short. Did you know that all through the year 2020, you were told time is short in Romans, the days are evil. And, um, first Thessalonians four, anytime the Lord is coming for us. We remain on that same notice now. And all Christians have been since there have been any Christians expectation and readiness have always been constant features of the Christian experience for 2000 years. There's been no new prophetic revelation since the year 2020 began. And I know on cable Christian TV, people are prophesying all the time, but I don't think they are. I think they say they are. There's been no new revelation from God to make us contradict the warning at the end of the book of revelation, not to add to this book. The word has been given to us and it's settled. And what we're expecting is Jesus to come get us in his timing tonight or this afternoon or 10,000 years from now in his timing. He doesn't tell us when. And that's one of the key features of the life is we're living in anticipation. Every day we labor under the same expectation, the same hope, the same promise of the accountability with him that is coming soon. And when I say Jesus is coming for you, some say, well, there the Christians are saying that Jesus is going to solve all our problems. Well, actually we're told in first John chapter two, that when Jesus comes for us, for some of us, it will be a problem. Shrinking back in shame at his appearing is a horrible thought for you and I to entertain. But that's the question when your savior comes for you. He's bringing you to himself for the judgment seat of Christ, for his evaluation of your life as a believer in Jesus that had the Holy Spirit, who had the opportunities that God has given you to be about his business. And here's the thing, American beloved Christians, very often we don't give a thought to what is his agenda. We are so busy thinking about our objectives. The judgment seat of Christ is coming. And I believe my role in your life is all about that. An inevitable accounting that you have with your savior. And he's going to say, 
what didn't you understand about one day at a time? And the time is precious. There's not much of it. And it's about me. Did you not have someone tell you? You who are of the flock at Preston City Bible Church will be able to say, well, he kind of tried to. That's our problem is we don't think it's about him. We think it's about us and we get the wrong objectives. God told us what he wants of us. It's very clear and it's awesome. Now let me pop quiz on you and what Jesus said. Is it a heavy burden? No, it's a joy. It's a delight to do what pleases our father. As we close the door on 2020, I want to give you five minutes Better quit riffing on what I wrote here. Five minutes of retrospection about the year we just put to bed. All right. I know some of you are looking at 2021 and saying already 10, 11 days into it. Oh, no, Lord, take it back. Take it back. <laughs> there are horrible things afoot in our time for sure. But as that great theologian Rodney Atkins said, if you're going through hell, keep on going. It'll pass. We might as well fire up the afterburners and meet the year with vigor and decisiveness. You're going to experience the coming days in this interesting phase of American history. We might as well do it with, uh, with everything we've got. So let's briefly look at 2020. One of the most wonderful years of ministry I have ever had, for sure. Um, I'll be 14 years here in June with you. And, um, that's, that's two tours for a Methodist preacher. They get seven years and move them. And, uh, I'm not a Methodist preacher. Um, we began the year with the biblical doctrine of contentment. Do you remember that little study? The biblical doctrine of contentment. And, um, if you haven't, if you don't remember what we said there, I, I didn't, I had to go back and look. There were some really uh, helpful insights, I think. And I recommend the tapes as we used to say, go check out uh, the doctrine of contentment. We were also working through the prophetic future and had been for quite a while. We went all the way through Daniel um, in 2019 and then um, parts of, of Jeremiah. And we're, we're taking a pause actually for COVID. Um, but we've been working through Matthew 24 and 25 called the Olivet Discourse, which is uh, Israel's time of trouble, the coming tribulation. And uh, concludes with the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus, so that as the Apostle Paul says, all of Israel will be saved. And uh, my plan is to finish our study on prayer and move back into the Olivet Discourse pretty soon with you on Wednesday nights. We worked the Christian life of Paul through Colossians. Listen to what we did in, in 2020. Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians. We did all of that in the year 2020, and it was all survey. Now, what is the Christian life of Paul? Let me check my time hack here. The Christian life of Paul is us saying that according to the scriptures, the apostle Paul is an apostle of whom? Who sent Paul? Yeah, he's an apostle of Christ. So are we really Pauline Christians or are we Christians? And Paul is one sent by Jesus to teach us the word of Christ. So, there, but there's a thing out there called the Pauline Christian movement. I know it's not a problem for most of you, maybe some of you out there in TV land, but it's a problem and it's been with us really since the early first, second century of the church with a, with a, a pastor named Martian, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. I know you're thinking 
from the fourth planet. But Martian was, uh, was the guy that said, we've got to get rid of all the Jewishness of the scriptures of the New Testament and only read Paul, which is hilarious since Paul is the ultimate Jew after Jesus. Anyway, uh, the Christian life of Paul is really about seeing how the teachings of the Lord Jesus are brought along in the message of Paul to all the disciples that he taught, all those that he was discipling, and how Paul is actually just carrying out the Great Commission, and we are in Paul's train doing the same thing. It's the same mission, which synchronizes you with the, the study we did of the mission. We also took a break on the prophetic study and talked about Christian stability in times of historical uncertainty. We continue to discuss this. We had a message about that this morning. And I recommend the study on Christian stability in times of historical uncertainty. Do y'all remember what we focused on in that study? Christian stability. We went and looked at Joseph. We looked at the life of Joseph and God's provision for him. And what's the message of the life of Joseph? It's not about my circumstances. It's about my savior. It's not about what I'm going through. It's about how I go through it because this few decades of life in this frame is setting me up for my eternal service and rulership under Christ. I have to take an eschatological, a long view in order to understand this Christian life. This year, we introduced the very excellent teaching ministry of Mr. John Miles a double major from Moody Bible Institute, who's now with Chafer Seminary as a THM student. He brought us several wonderful messages of this last year, as did Mike Regal in Deuteronomy, Mark Raybon and Joshua, and Jack Hayes in the book of James. And many of you had other things that happened along the way. Knee surgery, hip surgery, uh, just to name a couple. Some of, I'm going to leave some out. We had babies born. This is a wonderful, it's been a wonderful year. Uh, <laughs> wonderful year. We have uh, five minutes. It's over. I got one more paragraph. We've labeled, we've labored together in the ministry of the gospel under the aegis of the little band of brothers and sisters we call the work. The work happened in 2020. Wasn't that nice? That'll be a fond memory. We'll put in the scrapbook and leave it there, right? No, the work has just gotten started. And what is the work? Well, here's the thing, beloved. God has given us an entree, an entree into many families in Norwich through this wonderful thing called the Good News Club. And we did a, a, a little survey at Christmas time of who is available for ministry, for us visiting, for us inviting them. How many people did we go see? Did we go to 17 houses? Yeah. And how in the world did we do that? Well, we're not Santa Claus, not Pastor Dave, just magically making it happen. We got together and we talked about what the mission is in the gospel and the word of God and how we could do that in this case. And several, I'd say more than a dozen, 20s and 30s got together and orchestrated and executed calling, visiting, they cooked, they prepared trays of cookies for these families and, um, and, and even 40s, some, some even 40s. Your church family is doing the work in a coordinated combined effort. And I couldn't be more excited about that. What you have to have for that to happen is people that get the value of doing God's work and want to spend their time doing it. And as they learn and experience it, they say, give me more of that. I want to see God's work go forward in my life. I want to be part of it. Put me in coach. So this has been a real blessing to me, uh, seeing these young people and young at heart uh, get involved with this. 
And um, that in the year that we shut down the church and we didn't sing and we went, we were at home for a couple of weeks or a few weeks and met online, did the, the, the chapel, remember the COVID chapel where Rosalind boys are one, uh, one message a day walking through various passages of scripture. Toward the end of the week, we get the four-year-old and the, <laughs> the, the, the two-year-old or whatever, the, the five and, and three-year-old. And that was always uh, more cute than edifying probably, but it was enjoyable. Anyway, it's been a great year and um, it was phenomenal, though we canceled many of our plans due to the novel coronavirus. That's my report. And uh, the word of God goes forward. Our mission continues and we need to proceed not uh, with caution. We need to proceed with courage as we continue to do God's work and ask him to put us into that work on his timing. If you turn, please, to 1 Timothy 7 minutes and 45 seconds. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. Why would I open 1 Timothy chapter 1? Because we're in the Christian life of the Apostle Paul, and Paul is teaching Timothy how to conduct the work of the gospel. It's a great way to conclude his ministry, what we call the pastoral epistles, but we're doing the, the life of Paul chronologically. The last three letters of Paul are 1 Timothy, Titus, and the last is 2 Timothy. That's the sequence. This is long past anything we have in the book of Acts. Acts 28 ends with Paul's Roman, first Roman imprisonment. And the letters that he wrote while in prison, we did over the course of 2020. We, this was the year of the prison epistles. Interesting that the country was also largely locked down while we studied Paul's prison epistles. That's kind of funny. Well, now Paul is free. And he is traveling. We have in First Timothy record that he's going to Macedonia. He's, he's back on the mission, probably going to Thessaloniki. And uh, who else is in Macedonia? The Philippians, which we just heard from him writing to them. Thank you. I want to come see you and so forth. And so now uh, Paul is headed uh, back to the field and he's got Timothy in Ephesus. He has his apostolic emissary, we call it, a pastor that he has trained, that he is communicating with, that he puts him into a position to lead and set up and build. When he can't be there, he sends Timothy or Titus. And so we have so much uh, in the scriptures about how to conduct ourselves because God saw fit to record in what Paul wrote his word to us through Timothy. First Timothy chapter one. Let's just read through that first paragraph and, and juice it a little bit. I don't know how many messages we'll have on first Timothy, but it'll be more than five and fewer than 20. How's that? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. First question, who is our savior in first Timothy chapter one? God. God, our savior. We don't often think about this, that he, when, when he says God in Christ Jesus, he doesn't mean Jesus isn't divine or part of the Trinity. He means that I'm talking about God, the father and Jesus Christ, as we read in John 17, whom he sent. And so God is our, he's called our savior. Do you think of the father as your savior? It's a pretty common statement in the apostle Paul's writings in Colossians chapter one, verse 13, he saved us, transferring us from the domain of darkness, freeing us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Who has a beloved son? That's God, the father that we're talking about who saved us. And so how did God, the father save us? Not by going to the cross for us. That's called patripassionism. It's an ancient heresy. We don't believe it. 
It's like it's trying to say Jesus is the same person as the Father, and he's not. When the Lord Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, nevertheless, not as I will. When he says this, he's not saying, um, I'm talking to myself. He's not wrestling with himself. He's talking to his Father in heaven. And so this is the doctrine of the Trinity. But I want you to point, I want to point out to you that it's absolutely right for you to see God the Father as your Savior because he's the author the orchestrator, the originator of the plan, if you will, that the son is executing. And that's one of the great themes of the gospels. The theme of the gospel of John is that I've come to do the work that you sent me to do. Of course, Jesus in Galatians chapter two, loved me and gave himself for me. But in John three, as you know, God loved the world this way. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The plan of salvation is a Trinitarian plan. It's the plan of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in terms of the, the carrying off of your salvation. And the Father is seen as the planner, the Son, and the executor. The Holy Spirit is the silent partner, the one that enables and works behind the scenes, the empowerer. <clears throat> How do you know that, that the Holy Spirit is empowering the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry? Because he's called the Spirit of Christ. That's why, because he empowered Christ to do his work in the flesh, because the Holy Spirit led the Lord Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4. And now today you and I walk by the Spirit and so are incapable of fulfilling the lust of the flesh when we are walking by the Spirit. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So in a way, Paul is looking back at the plan of the father and how it is through the son to the future, which is our hope. The Christian mentality, the Christian attitude is always future focused. The Christian attitude is always looking at where is it going? What is the end state? What are my objectives? Business gurus will tell you, figure out, figure out what your plans are, figure out what your goals are, and then find out steps you can take to get you to your goal. That's how people plan a diet. Happy New Year. That's how people plan anything. That, that we've got our goal in mind, and so we know where we're going, so we start making plans to get to that, what discipline steps to get to that goal. We are told all through scripture what the future holds. And that's what that word hope means. Elpis. The Greek word E-L-P-I-S. Elpis, really. E-L-P-I-S. There's a verb form of it. Elpizo, to hope. Has nothing much to do with what we in, in English think of the word hope. When I say Christ Jesus, our hope. I think I have a, an affectionate thought. But that's a good thing. But as I think about what hope means, scripturally, it is never uncertainty. It never is like we use it. Um, is he going to finish on time today? I hope so. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, we're not even out of verse one. <laughs> Trying to go through paragraphs. If you're watching, it'd be through verse seven. So, um, but, but hope is uncertainty in English, but in the Bible, it's certainty, it's expectation. Hope means somebody has said something they're going to do that I know who he is, 
who's saying it. So I'm expecting him because of who he is. All the promises of scripture are future promises. The Abrahamic covenant is an eschatological. It's never done till forever. The, God is the eternal God and we are stuck in time and we are so easily distracted by the near term. What's going to happen over the next four years? What's going to happen today? What's going to happen tomorrow? Well, probably some bad stuff. I can always expect it. I told you man is the problem. But God is the solution and God tells you when the solution comes. It's in the future and it's our hope. It's our expectation. Now I had a question. If confident expectation of the things you've promised that you're going to bring about, if that's what hope means, and it does, it means confident expectation that God will do what he said. If Jesus is our hope, then Jesus is our destiny. He is our future. He's not only our present, he's our future, which means that you and I need to constantly be refreshing our souls with the word of God, especially regarding Jesus, so that we're focused on him, so that we know him. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, as you know very well, says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's a constant renovation of thought. There's no, there's no shortcut. It's not a habit of coming to church on Sunday. And that was what we did for God that week. Absolutely not. That's a religious absurdity. It is a lifetime of devotion where I'm feeding my soul with God's word every day. And really the Holy spirit is feeding me with God's knowledge so that I would know him. Our hope being Christ Jesus means that we are solid. We should be very solid in our expectation of God doing what he said. And that that's something that you need to grab me every once in a while and say, yeah, but Jesus is our hope. As I look at the headlines, as I watch the current events, and I need to be able to do that for you as we uh, lose track, lose sight of the long-term as we look at the short-term difficulties. Remember the nature of our race in Hebrews chapter 12 is to recapitulate what Jesus did. He didn't look at the suffering. He disregarded the shame, but he endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He was looking out at what was coming. And so he's been seated in glory at the right hand of the father. You have a glorious future and destiny because of and only in Jesus Christ. And so he needs to be, listen to it, our only hope. Anything else that is the cause for me to have hopeful expectations of future good, I run the risk of idolatry. I really do. And I want to challenge you about that. Some people's hopes were dashed the other day when Georgia did something that was almost unthinkable, unless there was something going on, <laughs> as we say, uh, the, the November 3rd for half the country for half or maybe a little less than half, whatever, half the country um, of, of interested adults. It was a disaster and hopes are dashed and futures are dark, but our hope was never in the United States of America or our political processes. They aren't. Our hope can't live there because it's a human administered system that's going to be flawed because of the humans that administer it. Now, I'm with you. If you want to get humans out of the um, affairs of your daily life as much as possible and just you make your choices to serve the Lord, I am in 100% agreement with you. And believe, it, believe me, I'm praying for you that you can do that, that you're free to make your choices before God without... Um, intrusion or intervention, but you might find yourself in the Romanian communist prison 
being uh, tortured daily like Richard Wormbrand. I mean, you could end up that way as a Christian, trusting God, holding out the truth, saying, I'm going to tell the truth no matter what they say, no matter what they cancel or what they uh, charge me with, I'm going to tell them of the Lord Jesus Christ. It may come to that for you, but it's not there now. And for Richard Wormbrand in prison, the hope was not that someday the Americans will win the Cold War, which we did. And he was eventually able to come here and say, hey, send the gospel over to Romania and the, the Soviet countries because there was no gospel. Our hope is not in political processes. Our only hope is in the Lord Jesus. And if we would communicate that more, I think you'd be more pleased with the outcome of political processes. But um, uh, I don't hold out a lot of hope <laughs> in the short term for that. Paul says he's writing to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I believe it's right for Paul, obviously scripturally, to think of Timothy as his true child. And this is something that is a theme that runs throughout Paul's writings. You know, in the first centuries of the church experience, the Romans in backlash against the movement that Paul and the power of God, the spirit kind of got rolling throughout the Roman Empire. The backlash was nasty. They, they would say things about us like we were um, incestuous because husband and wife would assemble in church, but they would call each other brother and sister. So obviously brothers in the, in the Christian movement are marrying sisters. And they would say that that's, that's repugnant. They would say that these people believe they eat or they, they practice some sort of infanticide and they eat the flesh and, and drink the blood of an infant. That was the Roman libel that they would, they would spread about Christians uh, early in our experience. And, um, you know, and everybody knew it was true because everybody knew it was true, right? Public lie. And everyone knows except that it's just not true. It never was true. And you missed the point. But what I'm pointing at is that Paul calls Timothy his kid. Paul's not the father of Timothy, but he's the father of him in the faith. And in what way can Paul say he's the father? In a replacement of God the father? No, because God has placed him spiritually in a position where he is functioning in a fatherly way toward Timothy. And in fact, he evangelized, uh, or I should say probably not evangelized, but ministered to Timothy in his growth. And we know something about Timothy's life with his mother and his grandmother as believers, no doubt in the movement of the Apostle Paul. And so this young man has a special relationship with the Apostle Paul, which is personal it involves oversight. It has wisdom and advice. It's the things that we want from our father. Oh, how I wish at times I could call my dad. You know what I mean? Those of you who lost your parents, I want to call him sometimes and say, hey, let's talk about this or that issue. And you can't because they're gone. You want to talk. You do need to talk to your heavenly father constantly. Our life is to be prayer without ceasing for sure. But God does not speak back to us except as he's speaking to us in his word. If you're hearing him audibly speak back to you, that's probably not what you think it is. Nevertheless, we have one another. We have the word of God that is in each of us. And Paul describes the most powerful ministry relationships as family relationships. Beloved. You're all different. You're all coming from different places. You have different perspectives because that's how God made you. 
You're all repenting differently. You all have problems that you're struggling with, that you have to come to face with, face to face with and deal with before God. And it's every one of you is different the way you process that. Just like brothers and sisters growing up in their parents' household. You want to talk about differences? Look at a couple of siblings. Now there are some differences between siblings. We're talking about rivalries. We got sibling rivalry. We want to talk about warfare and hatred and malice. Just get a bunch of siblings together. Because why? Because they're sinners, because they don't look at their own sins, but they see the sins in others. They become disgusted by the other person's sin while the other person is disgusted by their self-righteousness. And then we're off to the races of just the messy playpen of human interaction. But in Christ who saved us from our sins, we can say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so is my sibling. What I'm trying to tell you is that if the Bible presents, and it will throughout the first epistle to Timothy, if it presents us as a household of family members, then the problems that happen in households of family members are to be expected. And the solutions are the same. Don't focus on each other's sin. Focus on Christ because love covers a multitude of sins. First Corinthians 13 says, forgive one another. Basically in advance, love doesn't count a wrong suffered. And yes, people are going to hurt you, but not as much as God constantly is helping you. So you need to focus on him and then treat one another as he wants you to for his sake, as he has said to man throughout his revelation to man. You deal with one another, not as the focus, but you focus on me and deal with one another the way I want you to. So you love each other as duty to God. And so Timothy is his child in the faith and he will stir him up in second Timothy. Get back at it. Get back in the fight. One thing dad does sometimes is he's in your corner when you're in the boxing ring. The great relationship in the portrayal, the, 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 the drama Rocky with Stallone, the, the portrayal of Rocky with Mickey is a father son relationship. That's one of the great benefits. That's why kids respond to good coaching because it's father son, it's parent child to steer you in the specific skills necessary to do the thing that we're doing here. Cause I have the know-how it's the old apprenticeship thing that dad's a master carpenter. So I grew up in dad's house. I become a master carpenter because he teaches me fathers are teachers. Fathers are providers. Fathers are protectors, but fathers also have to know how to take an adult and let them be the adult. They're supposed to be with the necessary backup that a father can should lovingly does provide timothy is doing his own work and he's under the apostle paul but but he's an adult that's a beautiful thing here's an interesting thought we think of parents and children especially when you look at us we got all these little kids think of parents and children as um as a, a a young thing you know honor your parents is to obey them and, and when you're in the household, but then when you grow up, most of your experience, check me on this. Most of your experience though, with children and parents is adulthood experience. They're only kids for 18 to 30 years or whatever it is. I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're only kids for so long for a couple decades. And then however much longer you have with them, that's adult experience. And I think the great dream, and you've heard me say this before is like what Paul has with Timothy, what God, the father has with God, the son <laughs> is that we are in rapport as friends in, in adulthood in an adult, in an adult relationship. It's one of the great dreams that all of you who have older children know. 
some of you desire and lament uh, lacking. And certainly we who've lost our fathers miss them on that account. He says in verse three, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach heterodidoscalia, that they may actually not heterodidosco, heterodidoscaleo, that's what the word is. It's hard to figure out the endings of these sometimes. It's actually a verb that they might not teach strange doctrines. It's in the uh, infinitive saying this is the purpose and the purpose of your instruction is so that they not teach heterodidoscalia, strange doctrines. So not only is Paul sending Timothy into Ephesus to do some important adult work, he's sending him as a fireman to put out a fire. He's sending him to fix a problem that's going on in Ephesus. Ephesus is a, is a magic capital of the ancient world. We read about that in the book of Acts. There's all kinds of craziness from the culture that if it leaches in, if the satanic lies that are in the Ephesian culture leach in to the Christian faith, we'll have something that isn't the Christian faith anymore. And there has to be a strong boundary between what God has given in Revelation and what man concludes in the doctrines of demons and the assertions that people make based on speculations and or revelation from Satan's minions, demonic possession and so forth. And the realm of demonic possession includes the occult, it includes the crystals, it includes the rocks, it includes the fairies, it includes all the things that people are after to find some way to know stuff that you can't know unless someone from the other side tells you. The horoscope, the Ouija board, the, the, the palmist, the tarot card reader, all of these things for us who know Jesus Christ are absolutely forbidden. Because they're all illicit sources of supposed knowledge. And here's the thing. In Deuteronomy, we're told the way you test for a true prophet is if they agree with the word that Moses has given. If their sign that they give you doesn't come true, they tell the future it doesn't happen, then they're a false prophet. And if they have a sign that comes true, but they speak against Moses' instruction then they're a false prophet and God is testing you. What I'm trying to tell you, beloved, is there is real power in the occult. There is real power in the things of God's enemy and God permits that. My favorite example in the Bible of the real power is in Exodus. Those cats can actually turn, uh, they can conjure frogs. They can turn the water into blood, not turn it red with some, with some tricks, with some food coloring. The, the, the court magicians of Pharaoh are demonically powerful to do several of the plagues. And eventually they run out of gas. They, they can't keep up. But when, when, they, when Moses throws his staff down and it becomes a snake, they didn't make their staff look like a snake. They threw their staffs down and they became snakes too. That's the scriptures. There's power. The Bible tells you there's power in the occult. There's power that Satan is permitted by God to extend to, uh, to those under his sway. And it's all illicit. It's all destructive. And Christians, if you entertain 
uh, this, it becomes a curse to you. It becomes a problem for you. It becomes a, a cause of oppression and suffering for you that you don't need. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, I believe here this is how it works. You who are not sealed by the Spirit to the day of redemption. If you don't know Jesus Christ, the expectation is if you dabble in the occult, it will more than dabble in you and you will open the door to a demonic possession. And you're supposed to really avoid that. So my, my, my challenge to you is just like Timothy was sent to preach the clear gospel of Jesus Christ and to restrain the occult in Ephesus from making its little, little rivulets into the body of Christ. So we need to hold that line so that we instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths. Oh, this is so good right now. Not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to Zetasis. What's a Zetasis? Well, my Bible says speculation. It could be argument. It could be questions, but it comes from the word to search out. You ever know somebody that is, it feels like they're genetically programmed to seek out the, the other the strange, the weird, the niche, the, the thing that, well, we really can't know, but I know I got a special note. You, you ever be around people like this? Some of you are like, we are people like that. No, no, you're not. You, but they're always, they always get snagged on the wrong thing. That's some sort of weird speculation. It's, it's, I mean, it's YouTube is full of it. The internet is full of this and it, it gets trafficked freely. Um, now, now, if you say what you think and you think different than the way you're supposed to think, then they'll take you down. But if, but if you want to traffic in weirdness, you can do that all day. Um, and he says to pay attention. Prosecco is to be occupied with, to be com consumed by. We have a mystery, we're told. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are told there is a mystery, and it is that which was not revealed before, but it is now that the, the, the Gentiles have been brought in to be one body with believing Israel so that today you have a new thing called the church. That's the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians and Colossians. But that's revelation from God. When you go outside of God's revelation to find the secret stuff that's other, you're uh, inviting trouble. Because instead of pursuing these endless speculations, let me talk to you about genealogies. In the ancient world, um, I hope you know that uh, there was always an effort to connect the rulers to the great myths of the great legends. Augustus was supposed to be, you know, an heir to Romulus, I believe, or or. Uh, something like this. There, there was always this effort to go back to the myth and say that you were, you're part of the original, you're part of the thing. And, and it, if you go back not farther, much farther than, than the early Roman empire in the uh, first couple centuries, uh, you get to, uh, these guys are the sons of gods that, um, you know, uh, these great, um, these great heroes in the legends and myths were demigods were part Zeus part, you know, from Zeus and a human mother or something. Um, I was talking to a, a Chinese uh, believer once and I said, is there anything that sounds like Nephilim, like Genesis six in the Chinese thing where uh, a human is the product of the divine, where, where like a, a powerful God or demon uh, becomes a, a father of a human. And um, Merlin is supposed to be this, by the way, in the English stuff. 
There's always this thing. Well, he said, yeah, you know, the son of the dragon is a major theme in Chinese mythology. Before the Buddhism came in, there was the old Chinese religion, the old animistic nature stuff. And uh, there are many gods in this. And the great God is the dragon. The great God is the dragon. That sounds like the people down in Ecuador that think they have to jump over the boa to get into heaven. There's a snake and all this stuff. I wonder why. Maybe we all got off the same boat and then God confused the languages of Babel. But anyway, um, uh, the great dragon is this the ultimate God in the old Chinese pantheon. And um, the legend is that there will be the son of the dragon who will come and liberate and unite the people and, and lead them to, to, you know, to the, whatever the destiny, the, to the desired end. The son of the dragon, he said, Chairman Mo was part of the propaganda for Mao was that he was the son of the dragon. That's a thing. It's one of the great public lies that the Chinese suffered through. By the way, in the Great Leap Forward, when they decided to centralize the economy in China, um, there were actual uh, lots of records that, that got dug up of people that had resorted to cannibalism. They were starving so badly in the, in the countryside, outside the cities where you can't distribute the grain that you stole from the country. Anyway, that's just an interesting aside about the son of the dragon. Um, but we struggle on, don't we? Um, he says that there are these genealogies. And I think this goes back to this kind of speculation, this kind of traditional thing that humans get involved in, which turns out to be kind of a counterfeit. There are all kinds of pagan counterfeits that are disgusting to us. The idea of, um, of the false gods making human babies and then the humans being great leaders. That's kind of nasty to us that, you know, the Hercules myth. But um, even worse is the idea that if you sacrifice your child to the, um, to the fertility God, then he'll provide crops and prosperity to you. That's the worst counterfeit of all. And this is the reason God sent Joshua and the destruction of the Canaanites because of Baalism and the worship of Molech, um, because it's the worst counterfeit is that one would be a son who would die for us to give us eternal life. See that that's, it's true. We need a savior, but it's not so that we're fertile. It's so that we are restored to a relationship with our creator. But anyway, there's all kinds of crazy, um, Alex Jones, Tom Horn, UFO weirdness that you can get involved in. And it's better not to. And Tim, Timothy's being told that you need to ask them not to pay attention, not to be occupied by these things because they give rise to argument and discussion and nothingness. You can get nowhere with them, but there's a bigger problem from that distraction. So you think of these guys in the coffee shop somewhere all talking about the aliens, the lizard people in Washington or whatever. And um, what you end up with is that you're just distracted from the literally what he says, the administration of God by faith, the administration of God, which is in or by faith. Well, what's the administration of God? The administration of God is the order, the, the stewardship that he's entrusted to us. Timothy is on mission. He's got a job. Jesus gave it to us is to make disciples. And it's not disciples of the lizard cult or the UFO story or whatever the weird thing that people are going after. It's disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's by faith in him, not by putting together the Da Vinci code to find out the real truth behind the secret that nobody knows, but these three people. And they're really smart because they've got a YouTube channel, right? This is how I believe it applies in our time. 
this administration that God is furthering through us is the Great Commission. It's the mission he's given us to share Jesus with people. Now, I talked to the, the, the men, uh, young lads all yesterday in the men's huddle about the mission. I think it's really important for you to understand this. Timothy's responsible to share Christ, right? Right? Well, is that evangelism? Is that telling unbelievers about the Lord Jesus? It certainly is. Is that all it is? Or by thinking these thoughts of the Lord Jesus through the Apostle Paul to Timothy, thinking these thoughts together, are we not sharing together in Christ right now? We believers in Jesus. See, the Great Commission is not, it's real good up in Matthew 28, it's not to evangelize, it's to make disciples through an evangelism process that ends in baptism, and then to teach them forevermore to keep all that Jesus commanded. What we're doing is the, is the work. And the speculation and the weird stuff is a distraction at best from that. And so he's sending Timothy to a troubling, troubled situation to resolve it, to remedy it by bringing the attention back to Jesus Christ. I hope you can see that when there's the secret thing that I know that nobody else knows, Planet X is going to get us. Uh, <laughs> when you have all this, this speculation and you build, uh, you build you know, ladders of nothing up to nothing in speculation, it's a fun ride. It's, it's telling stories. Stories are this way. Novels. A novel is possibly, well, generally sharing some sort of conflict in its resolution, but it's all made up. In fact, they'll tell you, this, doesn't this is not my high school girlfriend and has nothing to do with <laughs> anything that I've been through in life, even though he's telling the story of his whatever in a novel. The, the novel is just made up and it's fun and it's a diversion, but that's pretty much all it is. It's just a waste. And when you bring novel and imaginary into the realm of knowledge, of life, of what we're here for, of what's going to happen next, which is what prophecy does, when you bring it into that realm, we're distracted from our only hope, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the goal of our instruction, Paul says, takes you out of, now notice the contrast. This doesn't always come out when you're just reading through. He says, if you, if you pay attention to the myths, the endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, if, if myths and genealogies, then mere speculation, reasoning, disputing, just coffee clatching about it, don't get anywhere, right? Always learning, never coming to a knowledge of the truth. If, if you do that, then you get this. Look at the if then in verse five. I know it's in your Bible, in your Bible. It, it, I don't have a video, sorry. If, if, you, if you look in verse five at what our instruction takes us to. The goal of our instruction is not coffee clatch talking about things that we can't really know. The goal of our instruction is love. That's God's love through you from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See the contrast? You can end up in uh, mindless or, or useless speculation about things you can't know, which is basically Netflix. I mean, it's just, it's just telling stories. Or you can have love produced in you, expressed to others from a pure heart. Where did that pure heart come from? David asked, created me a clean heart. It's a work of God in you. And a good conscience. Who wants that? Good conscience. What's that mean? Do you know what a good conscience is? It's a functioning discernment that you have in you. The word sunidasis to 
etymologically means to know, um, be able to discern between two things, something like that, with seeing sunidasis. A conscience means that I know something is right. And when something comes into uh, the, the awareness of my conscience that contradicts it, it trips. It says, wait a second. No, I know what the, what the principle was. And that trips my principle. It's interesting. I think you can break a conscience by filling it with garbage, things that aren't true, but you believe them. And then things trip your conscience that aren't really wrong. I see that all the time in the popular morality of our culture. Isaiah says, woe to them who call evil good and good evil. See, the morality of today is don't infringe on anybody's right to do anything except oppress people that disagree with you in the main party line. Sexual liberty, uh, yes. Religious freedom, no. I can do what I want with my business. No, you are protected to do anything you want to anyone's business. Yes, that's the culture that we live in. And, and it's, there's a woke conscience that's developed. But conscience means not just the ability to discern, but a good conscience means discerning actually what God thinks from what he, what he approves and what he doesn't approve. If we're talking about your Christian discernment, and I believe this is a product of spiritual growth. We have to grow. We're not just born again, all of a sudden, perfectly attuned conscience. You have to grow into the thoughts of God. There are preachers. There are preachers claiming to be Christian that think that the Bible is about race relations. It's not. The Bible is about how the human race relates to our creator. And the secret to how you treat other people is you go to God first and see what he wants. Let me give you an example of that. Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the summary Mosaic law for Israel, the operating principles of, of Israel's function are four commandments of how you will treat God and then six commandments of how you will treat your fellow men and other, men, uh, and other country people for God's sake. How you treat God, the first four, how you treat people for God's sake, the last six. The way you treat people matters to God. And that's the thing that's missing in all the relationships. Well, you know, I can't stand her. Well, what does God think about her? Bring him into the conversation. Expand your perspective a little bit. And think like he thinks about the other person. And that's a good conscience. The goal of our instruction, parangalia, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This may be the theme verse of first Timothy. This would be a good life verse for all of us, especially if you're going to teach the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a clean conscience, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Is your conscience clean? Believers, it, you should leave today with a clean conscience. You really should. You have said things you shouldn't have said. You've done things you shouldn't have done. You've bought into ideas you shouldn't have bought into. You have made all kinds of mistakes. I mean, if we looked at the printout of the record of your choices over the last month, from the way God sees them, it would be a big mess for all of us. We could put them all up and frame them as we are the problem. That's what we would call the art gallery. We are the problem. And yet you should have a clean conscience. Because you are supposed to be continually cleansed by the blood of Jesus, his son, who goes on cleansing us from all sin. The problem with our conscience, and this is the thing that the world will never tell you, is that you are supposed to be connecting to your creator. 
You who are believers in Jesus Christ have an inseparable union with your creator through the son. But sometimes your conscience is broken because you have stepped out of line. The solution for unbelievers who do not have a relationship with God is to trust in Jesus as your savior to receive the cleansing once for all of all sin, past, present, and future through faith alone in Jesus Christ, who paid for all your sins on the cross. And sins are the things that God has against us, where his perfect righteousness is saying, uh-uh, which is a much bigger category than the stuff that bothers us. But that's for the unbeliever. Someone that doesn't know Christ, you can have eternal life right now, just trust in him. But for the believer, we still are instructing and we still need a clean conscience, a good conscience. You know how to have a good conscience? If we confess our sins, that is to name them to God. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, purify us. Katharizo, to cleanse is probably the best translation. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Coming to God and saying, I'm a sinner is pretty close. But what he's saying in 1 John chapter 1 is not, God, I'm a sinner, save me. It is, God, here are the sins that you know that I have committed, that I know I have committed. Here's what I know I've done wrong. Telling him that, according to 1 John chapter 1, is kind of tantamount to examine yourself so that you not be judged in 1 Corinthians 11. It is the answer to the question that God asks Adam in Genesis chapter 3, where are you, Adam? Look at yourself. Self-reflection, self-assessment is not so that we find what a great person we are. It's so that we see again why we needed a Savior and continue to need a Savior. And that position of honesty and humility equips you for ministry. Because nobody who's uh, stuck in their sin wants someone to come up with their self-righteousness and square them away. But somebody who is chained wants someone with some bolt cutters to come set them free. For some men straying from love from a pure heart and a good conscience is your faith. Some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They don't even know what they're talking about, but they're talking, 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 talking. Oh man, I don't want to be that guy. How do you avoid that? Well, the answer to every question in church, as you all know, who've grown up in Sunday school is Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. How can I not be this person? Well, I better get hold of Jesus and focus on him. I better take his attitude about the law, about its purpose, about its fulfillment, about my relationship to it. And I better get with those he sent to clarify for me, the apostles, in this case, Paul. Get with the Lord Jesus so that you become instructed by those he has sent. You know, Jesus never wrote a word down that we have. The one thing we know of him writing, we don't know what he said. He wrote in the sand and nobody knows uh, from the scriptures what he wrote. <laughs> but everything we have of him is from him because he sent these apostles. So um, this is what we're after. Now, Christians, as I close this morning, on time, under budget, <laughs> ready for the meeting. I bet y'all can beat six minutes. No, I don't know. We, we wanted to take a little time with this meeting today. As I close, I want to remind you the whole point of everything. The, uh, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter three is good when it comes to doctrine. 
strangely. This is a hard thing for me to accept, but I take it on faith because the scriptures say so. It totally changes my perspective when he says that Ephesus is, is right in its doctrine, but it's left its first love. How can you be doctrinally sound and not love your father as you're supposed to? How can that be? Well, it is. It can be. Now, that doesn't mean doctrine makes you not love God. It means that you've lost the point. You've lost the focus if you've made it about doctrine and not about the God that the doctrine lets you know. It's a relationship with God. Beloved, if there's any summary of this ministry, the goal of our instruction is love. Love from a pure heart. That means that God gets, so gets hold of us that in 1 Thessalonians 3, he causes our love to increase and abound for one another and for all, even as we do for you. What does love mean biblically? That's the question. Love is not affirmation of self-destructive choices. That is not love. That is, that is functionally hatred. Go ahead, pull the trigger. You really want to do it anyway. Just go ahead and do it. You really want to. That's hating someone. You know, I'm going to say it, but we really want to play in the street. We like the solid little pretty yellow lines. We want to walk in between the two little pretty yellow lines on the street. Love is not saying, oh, yes, little darling, go play in the pretty yellow lines. Love is saying it sometimes it's tackling them right before the bus hits them. Love is saying get out of the street and is saying it as loud as necessary to make it happen. And that absurd instance of the little children playing between the yellow stripes. See, love is... Love is defined, I believe, by God in John three sixteen, For God loved the world thus, you put a colon, love the world, this is how he gave his only begotten son that we could have eternal life. In other words, God did what was necessary for us to have what he wanted us to have. He did, he didn't want, he just, he, he wanted and so did what was necessary for us to have what he wanted for us. For you to love one another and to love all, as, as Paul prays in 1 Thess 3, is for you to think of the other in terms of what God wants for them and to want and to act on that for their sake in, in accordance with God's interest, with what God wants. That's what love really is. It's a big term. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why so much discussion about it in 1 Corinthians 13. They're not loving each other. They're, they're uh, one-upping each other in their functional gifts. Oh, we're, we're flashy gifted. And they're not loving each other. And so they're just clanging gongs, ringing cymbals. My point as I close, the word of God is designed. It's special nutrition by God to increase your capacity, to mature you in the capacity to love God and one another. That's what we're supposed to be about. Sometimes that means loving each other through disagreements, divisions, things that we're not, we're not in the same opinion on. And notice in the context, one of the problems Timothy has to do is reject the culture leaching in to the church family. We're not here to be the culture. We're here to minister to it. And that doesn't mean we reject the culture. It means we don't absorb it. Sometimes that involves rejection. Agreed. But uh, we're here to love and the love, the greatest love that you've got is, is to provide eternal life that you would share Christ. Let's bow our head and close our eyes and pray for the, the year and the church family. Father, we thank you for the commission you've given us from your son to be about um, your, your work of 
not as they say, building the kingdom, because we can't build what your son alone can build, but populating those who will rule with him in it, recruiting that cadre of rulership for this coming kingdom. Certainly that's what you have us doing. Father Preston City Bible Church, together with one voice, we want to be about that work. We know that you've gifted each one of us differently so that we'll function together in concord and the making of disciples. We pray for you to bring that about. We know that happens in a context of fellow regard, of seeing each other as family. Father, knit us together, knit our hearts together in love. Make us a net to catch others who can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our prayer for anyone who may be hearing uh, me today, not, uh, not, not, not only in person, but on, online. If, Father, if there's anyone who is hearing today that has not received the gift of eternal life through your son, Help these words resonate with them that Jesus came to save them, that he died for their sins and rose from the dead to give them eternal life, that all they must do, the only thing they can do is to trust alone in him. Father, uh, bring many to know you through the works of these beloved here who represent you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.